knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up to what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, and welcome to Theology Gals. We're a podcast for women on the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. And today we have a special guest, which we'll be getting to in just a minute. And I think, Ashley, do you think maybe this episode will be a little controversial? Yeah, I think so. But I, I, I hope people see that we, we're trying to treat the topic fairly. You know, we're not definitely not meaning to attack anyone just just want to discuss it right and we are going to be talking about Tim Keller and I know every time Tim Keller comes up in our group there seems to be some pretty strong feelings on both sides some people you know love him some people take issue and I think we're gonna be talking to Amy Montravati who who wrote a couple of articles looking at the criticisms of Tim Keller and really looked at them very fairly. And so this isn't an attack Tim Keller hour. Episode. It, yeah. yeah. It's just, we want to know, are these criticisms valid? Are they not valid? Right. Right. And so I think we'll just go to a commercial and then come back and talk to her because it's a pretty long episode. So we'll be right back. This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Well, welcome to the School of Biblical Hermeneutics. Welcome everybody to Grappling with Theology. What is going on, guys? Shine as lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening and welcome to the Conversations from the port. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast. The Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Ten podcasts, one network. Check them out. BibleThumpingWingnut.com. And we are back with our guest, Amy Montravati. Did I say that right, Amy? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and some of you probably are not familiar with her. So I thought we'd have her share just a little bit um, about herself and her background, and then we'll get into our topic. Um, well, this is an exciting opportunity for the world to hear my voice for the first time. Um, <laughs> up until now, they've only been 
subjected to my writing, but I know some people talk about having a uh, face for radio. I think I have a face for radio and a voice for Twitter because I have this nasally <laughs> upper Midwestern accent. But, uh, yeah, so it's very exciting. Thank you for uh, inviting me on the podcast. Um, a bit about my background. I grew up in Western Michigan which is kind of a Calvinist Mecca, but we weren't actually Calvinists, but there's quite a large presence of uh, Christian Reformed and different things like that there. But I actually grew up in a pretty large Baptist church. And um, I attended Taylor University in Indiana. It's a small Christian college. And I actually studied politics and biblical literature. And at that time I wanted to be a political analyst, which uh, was just one of my many career prospects that has since crashed and burned, but that was what I went to school for. And um, at that time, I was attending a Wesleyan church because I actually was somewhat Arminian at the time. I know, heresy, but I was. <laughs> and so I was at Taylor for four years and finished there. And then I went to London for a year to do my master's degree. And while I was there, I went to an Anglican church. So I've kind of been doing all the rounds of all the different denominations. And uh, I finished there. And then I spent four years in Washington, D.C., working for the press office of the Egyptian government, which could honestly be its own podcast. But I think that's probably not as interesting for your listeners. But we had a revolution while I was there. It was pretty pretty exciting. And uh, I got involved in a very good church there. Uh, once again, it was a Baptist church and I, I grew a lot in my faith while I was there, made a lot of very good friends. And that was where I met my husband, uh, Jai, who was at the time he was in the Air Force and we got married. And then the Air Force moved us to Dayton, Ohio. Now I said that my degree was originally in politics and there's no politics in Dayton except maybe where they're going to put the sewer line. So uh, basically my career, that's when my career really died at that point. So <laughs> I looked for some other opportunities and I started writing historical fiction novels, which is something I'm still working on. And I started doing a lot more blogging, um, both on political issues and also issues having to do with um, just Christian life and the church. And I took a job as a traveling interviewer for the University of Michigan Institute for Social Science Research, which is not at all interesting, except that this job required me to go driving all around creation to interview people who were part of our surveys. And I kept thinking that this is really wasted time that I was spending so much time on the road and Although I was getting paid for it, it really wasn't benefiting me. So I said, I will try to find some kind of college course that I can listen to while I'm on the road. And because I was writing historical fiction novels, I looked for something on medieval Christianity. And the first thing that popped up was a course from Westminster Theological Seminary <laughs> by Carl Truman. There you go. I, honestly, at that point, it, it was a period of blissful ignorance in my life because I had no idea what either Westminster Seminary or Carl's or what either of those things were. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was a simpler time in my life. But 
So I started listening to that, and then I listened also to his course on the Reformation. I just love him so much. And that was when I started to get sucked into the reformed vortex, as I call it. <laughs> <laughs> Once I listened to that, I, I contacted him to just say, I really appreciated your course. And uh, then as a result of that, I got connected with Amy Bird, like one of the most awesome people I've ever met. And um, as a result of that, I just kept falling farther and farther down the rabbit hole. And I got on Twitter and I saw all the crazy reform people on Twitter. And so now I'm just, yeah, I'm totally in neck deep at this point. So <laughs> every time I see my mother now, she keeps saying, wow, you're really going over to the reformed, aren't you? And I know it's meant to be a compliment, but uh, it's okay. I, I think, I think I'm, I'm doing all right. So basically, um, I'm, I guess what a lot of people would call reform Baptists, but I've been told that, uh, we're not allowed to call ourselves that we are particular Baptists. So it makes us sound so picky, but uh, <laughs> it depends on who you talk to. Particular Baptist, but uh, I guess that's what I would be. So, so the reason, Amy, that we wanted to have you on is you have written a couple of articles on Tim Keller, kind of going over some of the criticisms, and I think because probably as you've gotten sucked into the reform vortex, you've seen that it's not like. <laughs> If you're reformed, we're just all happy with you. <laughs> that, you know, there is there's a lot of in-house debates and there's also a lot of criticisms. And I can even tell you, you know, myself, I, I've been reformed for 23 years and there's even just been a lot of changes within the movement. What, what was it particularly that got you that kind of encouraged you or prompted you to kind of research Tim Keller and write about him? Well, in that kind of whirlwind trip I gave you through the 30 years of my life, you probably gathered that I was basically raised in, I mean, technically it was a Baptist church, but I would say it was a very generic evangelical um, kind of upbringing. And within the evangelical world, um, there is a lot of love for Tim Keller. And I, I've heard, you know, my pastors quote him from the pulpit. And uh, he really is just a very respected figure. And then, as I said, once I got sucked into the reform vortex, I started seeing um, sort of a very different version of Tim Keller. Uh, every time I would go on Twitter, I would see, you know, memes, making fun of Tim Keller, people uh, criticizing different things. But you began to realize that particularly within his denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, um, there are some concerns about uh, maybe some of the things he's been teaching or the degree of influence that he seems to have over the denomination. And uh, to be perfectly honest, when I first came across all of this negativity, I was a little taken aback because it was just so different than the perception I had probably very naively, <laughs> but I mean, I never assumed that anyone's a perfect person, but honestly, compared to some of the people that are pretty loud within the ranks of Christianity, I thought Tim Keller seemed pretty reasonable. I thought he had some good things to say, and I still, I still believe that. But um, what really got me thinking was when some people who I do have a pretty good degree of respect for, such as, um, 
some of the people on the Mortification of Spin podcast or some of these other um, reformed voices, uh, when they were making some criticisms of Ten Color, I began to wonder, you know, if there was really something to this. And I wanted to seek out the truth of the situation rather than just the, the problem with something like Twitter is that a lot of things get lost in the shuffle and you're dealing with a lot of people's personal opinions and it can get a little bit, I, I almost hate to use the word, but it can get a little bit gossipy on Twitter. So I wanted to do something that was a little more in depth and could really establish the truth of the situation. And um, I did want to, if you don't mind, I wanted to read just a couple verses from 1 Timothy that I think are very useful when we're thinking about issues like this. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels, to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. So I was really hoping, as I decided to write about Keller, that I could hold to some of the principles in those verses. Obviously, we're dealing with things that are public issues, not some kind of private accusations. So the part mm -hmm. about two or three witnesses doesn't necessarily apply. But I think the principle that Paul was going for there was that you don't just accept hearsay or someone's opinion. You need to really establish the truth of the situation. But also, I think Paul teaches that just because someone's an elder doesn't mean they're beyond criticism. And we do need to be, you know, elders are held to a very high standard. So um, my ultimate goal as I was writing was that I was imagining that if I were to hand this to Tim Keller for her to read, would I be comfortable doing that? It would, or am I just saying something behind his back? Or this is something that I would actually be willing to say to his face? I think that's how we need to think about these things when we're engaging. You know, is it actually something that you would be willing to say to the person in person? So um, that was just my goal as I was writing was to kind of, even though I'm really not in any position to be a judge over Tim Keller, I'm not even in his denomination. Um, I just thought maybe I could try to present something that was a little less biased because I'm an outsider and I'm not so much inside of the situation and haven't become so frustrated by years of dealing with it, I can still maintain somewhat of a veneer of <laughs> impartiality. So that was my hope in writing these articles. Yeah, I like, I as I was reading your article, I thought it was really refreshing to read an article that's not just like, here's what's wrong with Tim Keller. It was it was, these are 10 things that people are saying, and I'm going to kind of explore the, the validity of them. Um, I'm going to look at biblically, like what's going on, and actually come to a conclusion. Yes, this is actually a, a fair criticism, or no, it's not. So I, I thought that approach was, was really refreshing. And as you we were talking, I was thinking in the reform world, I think it kind of depends who you talk to. Don't you think, Colleen, like who might have a uh, who might have a criticism and who wouldn't? Because I don't I don't oh, think I don't absolutely. think the entire 
the entire reform world um, has criticisms, but especially on Twitter. <laughs> well, we, we, <laughs> if if, if anyone actually, is curious, so no. we, we've actually taken a break from Tim Keller posts in our group because it just, it never goes well. And, it, and unfortunately, I, one thing I liked about your approach is so often, and this is what we see when it, when he comes up in the group is it's almost like you love him or you hate him. And you know, mm -hmm. there's no, there's no in between it's you love him. You think he's the best teacher in the world or one of the best, or you, um, you just think he's awful and yeah. shouldn't be a pastor or, at all. Or it's like, there's almost, there can be almost like if, if he's like my favorite teacher, there's this sense of like, you cannot touch him, you know, and that could go for anyone, it, you know, not just Tim Keller, it could be John MacArthur or whoever it is that's like your favorite teacher, like no one's beyond the scope of, of criticism. And just because, it, you know, I criticize or Amy or you do, Colleen, doesn't mean we hate them. It just means we're criticizing them. And I really like that verse you use, Amy, that, that really puts it into perspective biblically. Right, definitely. And we we live in an age, I mean, it, to say we live in an age of celebrity pastors is a bit of a misnomer because if you look even in the New Testament, you'd see Paul talking about super apostles. And, you know, we've always had people who have been sort of celebrities within the Christian world. And sometimes, much as we treat celebrities in Hollywood, we start to just sort of treat them as topics for discussion and not so much as whole human beings, you know, who obviously have flaws, but probably have good aspects as well. Um, so I'm not by any means trying to say that people can't be critical, but sometimes I think there's a certain extent to which when you're very famous, you could probably say just about anything and somebody would have a problem with it. So, you know, it's, it's always very difficult. And once again, I, I come from a political background, so I'm no stranger to all of this criticism of public figures. And we just know how our political discourse at this point has become so uh, rancorous and terrible. But um, it, I, I just am always trying to sort of step back and look at things logically and sometimes when we already are disposed not to like someone we always assume the worst possible motivations for all of their actions and when we're predisposed to like someone we always assume the best motivations and we probably need to find a way to think a little more clearly about people as you know we all have good characteristics and bad characteristics yeah and yeah. One thing that Ashley and I have talked about, we're going to be talking about in more detail, and and that is how can we disagree, but also remember that we are part, all part of the same church. Mm -hmm. so I think sometimes that can get lost. And the other thing, and I think you you said predisposed, and I think that's another thing that happens, and I'll see it in our group where someone will say, well, I heard such and such about such teacher or I heard that teacher isn't good and they haven't gone and looked and you know and sometimes things are said which are just not true so I think the way that you've approached this is helpful and you've done two articles and kind of wanted to talk about the first one where you outline the different criticisms of him and then look to see are is it a fair criticism is it true if it is you know mm -hmm. this is this is what's been said and uh, and just for our listeners I'm linking Amy's blog and the articles that she's written on Tim Keller on 
the notes for this episode. But the first one you go through has to do with his focus on cities. Mm -hmm. He has where a lot of people think he's too focused on cities. So is is this a fair criticism? And if so, what what's wrong with that? Is it wrong to be too focused on cities? Well, there's no question he would readily admit that um, his focus, his primary focus is on urban ministry. Um, and that, that's something that back in the 1980s, you know, he was asked by the Presbyterian Church in America to come found a congregation in Manhattan. And he's been working there ever since. But he also has um, an organization he leads called Redeemer Study to Study that is planning churches and major urban centers around the world. Mm -hmm. And they, they've done various initiatives there in New York to plant uh, churches and work with trained church planners. Um, this was a little bit of a tricky issue to deal with because on the one hand, I don't see any problem with his individual decision to focus on urban ministry. You know, all of us are called to different things. And I think without question, um, obviously cities are a major mission field. So I don't by any means want to uh, minimize that. God calls all of us to different things. The concern has more been that in some of the things he has said about cities that he maybe has gone a little too far or has started to call, kind of fall in love with the concept of the city itself and seeing the city itself as somehow connected with the gospel, which is, I can understand why people would have a problem with that. So I, in my article, I uh, quoted several times from a sort of very short booklet that he wrote called Why God Made Cities. And this is available for free on the Redeemer City to City website. So it's an official publication that they put out. And uh, some of the things he said are, for example, he said, cities drive you to sell your soul to something. They always create spiritual turmoil. People are always spiritually searching in cities. Uh, that's probably true. But then he went on to contrast that um, somewhat with small towns on page 29 of that book. He says, historical research shows that the early Christian missionaries in the Roman Empire did not go to the countryside. They did not go to the small towns. Paul was the best example of this. They went into the cities and only the cities to preach the gospel. And then he says, why? Because they knew that the small towns in the countryside are places where people are more conservative. They're not as likely to adopt new religions. They're not as open to new ideas. In those idyllic towns and suburbs, it can be easier to hide from the rawness of existence, from wickedness of the heart, from the transience of life. So, and that's the end of his quote. But I, when I read some of these things, I start to think that, you know, it's sort of oversimplifying matters because obviously um, what he calls the wickedness of the human heart and the transience of life, you, you can find that anywhere and not just in the city. And it, he starts to make it sound like the city is where you go if you really want to have a spiritual connection or you really want to see do gospel work, that's where you go into the city. Now, I do want to stress that even in this document, he says God doesn't call everyone to move to cities. And he makes clear that in some of his other writings that you can definitely do good gospel work outside this, the city. But part of the problem we have is that in our country right now, there's a growing divide between urban and rural areas and the mindset of people in big cities 
and the mindset of people who, who don't live in the big cities. I certainly saw this growing up. I grew up in a kind of a medium-sized town, and I've lived in rural areas and urban areas, and I see the different mindsets that people have. And those who don't live in, say, New York City often feel like, well, the people in New York think they're the center of the world, and of course everything's going to be about them. You know, So obviously when um, Keller has come out and say, saying some of these things, it sort of seems to play into that stereotype that people in big cities just think they're the center of the world. Now, there is no question that there are a lot of people in New York City. It's very influential, and that is definitely a mission field that we need to be involved in. But I, I thought it was a little helpful to put in context that um, when Tim Keller first started talking about the importance of cities, it was kind of back in the 1980s and 90s, and there was a very high crime rate in New York City, and a lot of people were leaving the inner mm -hmm. city at that point. And so he really was trying to say to people that rather than just abandoning the city and seeing it as opposed to Christianity, that we should see it as a mission field. So I think that initial, that initial impulse was a very good one. Um, I think maybe things have changed a bit. I, I don't think that young people are afraid to move into the cities anymore. I think, if anything, they're very attracted to it. So the cultural dynamic in our country has changed a little bit. And, you know, once again, with my political background, I see that one of the main influences and in who people even support politically is just based on whether they live in a city or not. It totally changes people's mindset. So I, I can understand why this can rub some people the wrong way if they are in a small church of 100 people in some small town in America and they have someone who's the pastor of a mega church basically saying we need to concentrate everything on the cities and I don't think that's exactly what he's saying but what you find a lot in reading Keller is that the problem isn't so much that he lacks orthodoxy but that he lacks clarity so what we find a lot in Keller is not so much that he's lacking basic orthodoxy but that he's not very clear in some of the things he says or one complaint I've often heard is that he'll talk one way to a conservative reformed audience but then when he's talking with you know people in the broader world he'll speak differently to them and there may be a place for that at times because for instance if I was going to go do gospel work in Manhattan or rural India, you know, I would speak to them a little differently. I would always still bring the same gospel truth. I wouldn't ever deny the gospel, but there could be a place to take a little different tone or a little different approach. But sometimes when people see these contrasts um, and they don't see everything in context, it can come off sounding pretty bad. For instance, he has in this same document, um, he said, that he had a friend who used to say that the country is the place where there are more plants than people and the city is the place where there are more people than plants. Since God loves people far more than he loves plants, he loves the city far more than he loves the country. Hmm. So when you just hear that in isolation, it sounds like he's saying God really loves people who live in cities. He doesn't love people who live in the country. <laughs> and I'm sure that's not what he meant to say. But we have to be very careful about the way we speak because, as I said, this is, you know, an official document that is being sent out to people. And 
it does have an impact. So people start to get this impression that he is sort of against rural areas. I do want to recommend for listeners of this podcast um, a couple things to read that would give them a real good idea of his views. One is what I mentioned, the pamphlet, Why God Made Cities. It's available at RedeemerCityToCity.com. Another, probably the foundational document that he's written about church planning is called Center Church. That's a book he's written. You can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And then he also wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition called The Country Parson. I linked to it in my article. And this is one place where he does talk about uh, the value of ministry in rural areas. It's not something you see him talk about very often, but it could give people a little different perspective on that issue. Okay. One of the other one of the other things that um, I hear a lot, and this is probably one I see on Twitter most, mm-hmm. is uh, that he is in a denomination, the PCA, that holds to the regulative principle of worship, mm-hmm. and that the criticism is that he does not follow or always follow the regulative principle of worship. Can you talk about that? What did you find when you when you explored that one? Sure. Well, this is one of, yeah, one of the biggest, if not the biggest complaint that I've seen recently on social media, uh, probably mostly because a video was unearthed from last fall where there was a liturgical dance performance during an offertory at one of Redeemer Presbyterian Church's services. And it is a little ironic that this has become a controversy now, because as I said, it happened last year. So it's not like something that's really breaking news. But this bothered a lot of people because they're saying that it's never been part of the traditional interpretation of the regulative principle of worship to have dancing in a service. And um, just for any listeners who don't know, because uh, honestly, where the church I grew up in, we would not have known, um, the regulative principle of worship essentially means that any form of worship that is not specifically prescribed in God's word is not something that should be included in a church service. And the bedrock belief there is that God has revealed to us how he desires to be worshipped, and that is the way that we should worship him. Now, there has been some disagreement over the years between Reformed theologians over what exactly that means or how it should be interpreted. So we should make that clear. But there are also some basic principles that have been in the foundational documents and have continued down to the present day. So, the yeah, the liturgical dance is the main objection I've heard recently. And um, I actually had an opportunity to hear from a staff member of Redeemer Presbyterian Church about this. And they said it's only used very occasionally. Um, It's not something they usually have in their services. And they stated that they believe it falls under the regulative principle of worship because of there are verses in the Psalms that speak of praising the Lord with dancing Um, That would be, for instance, Psalm 149, verse 3, and Psalm 150, verse 4. Now, it should be said that despite them telling me that, I think most Reformed people would say that's not how they would interpret the regulative principle of worship. Um, But this is where we get into part of the problem, 
is that individual PCA churches, and again, I'm not part of the PCA, so I'm not an expert on all the rules, but they're really bound by the Westminster Confession of Faith and the PCA Book of Church Order. I mean, that's really the rules by which they are bound. And I looked through uh, both of those documents and I have to say that I think they might have a little bit of a loophole because mostly those documents talk about what should be included in worship rather than what should be excluded. So based purely on the letter of the law, uh, it never specifically outlaws dancing. Uh, however, I think a lot of people feel it really goes against the spirit of the law um, because as I said, Reformed theologians have never considered that to be part of the regulative principle of worship. So I understand that. So my, my conclusion was basically that I thought that according to the traditional interpretation, the use of liturgical dance was not part of the regulative principle. Uh, for instance, John Calvin wrote about uh, the instance where King David danced before the Ark of the Covenant. He specifically said, this is not a model we should be following today. So based on that, you know, I would say it definitely goes against the spirit of the law, but I don't know, it, it might be difficult to actually bring a complaint about it within the PCA because there's kind of a loophole in that it, it's not specifically excluded. And this is, this is where I started to really get into the weeds because I don't understand all the PCA procedures. So I, I kind of leave it to other people to determine you know, whether this is actually a violation of the rule or not, but I could see how maybe uh, they've been able to do this and not get a lot of complaints. I also know that there are some people within the PCA who think that the particular presbytery up in, there in New York is so heavily influenced by Redeemer that they would never bring a complaint uh, because Redeemer is so big and influential. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I still want to have some faith in the traditional structures of church government within Presbyterian denominations, but um, th there may be some truth to that. I mean, any system is only as good as the people who are in it. So um, that was basically my conclusion. I mean, I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts since you both are part of denominations that, or a denomination that does hold to the Westminster Confession and to the regulative principle. Um, what would be your thoughts about that? Well, you go ahead, Colleen. Okay, I'll I'll let you an answer a little bit if you want, Ashley. The, I think I think maybe we need to do a whole episode on regulative principle of worship because it gets into it really gets into understanding the regulative principle of worship and that sort of thing. But I did want to ask you something, and then maybe mm -hmm. Ashley can answer that on Facebook. The Reformed community can be so interesting. <laughs> As you pointed out, Amy. <laughs> and I'm probably going to get in trouble for even bringing this up because I'm sure some people who brought this up are listeners. But so, um, someone, it was tried to be posted in our group, but I denied it um, because I thought I thought it was wrong. Um, but it was posted elsewhere on Facebook. They they posted that dance video, and uh -huh. it was some. I didn't even watch the video to be honest with you, but. It, appeared to be some sort of ballet or something and somebody and it was posted instead of being about the regulative principle of worship they they were 
accusing it of forwarding the lesbian and gay agenda. <laughs> and I kind of got into, I don't generally do a lot of fighting on Facebook, but I did comment on one of those and said, you guys are missing the point. That's not what, that's not what this is about. It's about the regulative principle of worship. It's not about homosexuality. Mm -hmm. Colleen, I'm so glad you brought that up because it was something I wanted to say that unfortunately a large amount of the comments were simply taking pot shots at guys who dance and um and that was a, a problem yeah, that's a problem assuming they must assuming they must be homosexual because they have had ballet training and i just think that's such an unloving and really unbiblical way to look at things and by no means am i trying to endorse an lgbt agenda here but i i don't think we should assume that because people are involved in dancing that they must be gay and I, I would hope that with an issue such as this I, I have no problem with the debate about the regulative principle of worship but i would hope it would not stoop to just name calling and making fun of these people who did the dancing it's not really their fault it, as far as i'm concerned the problem is not so much with the individual people who did the dancing it's with if anyone it's with the people of the church who set the principles that the church abides by so they're just going, you know, they're just going with what they've been told is a good thing to do in a church service. So I think we just need to look at the broader principle rather than, you know, yeah. you know making any accusations about individual people. Right. Yeah. There, I think that's there's a, good a lot of heterosexual dancers. And in fact, um, there's articles online that say, you know, wrong things people assume about ballet, male ballet dancers. And number one is like that we're all gay. Yeah. To give you a sense of how, you know, I might think about the whole regular principle thing with, you know, ballet dancing, it was really funny that um, one of the elders at our church taught on the regular principle like two weeks ago. And this was just after, you know, this was all coming, you know, this video was going everywhere. Um, in fact, I think it heard it, it had only had 100 views or something since mm -hmm. it was released. And then all of a sudden it had thousands of views. Mm -hmm. And so it had just become apparent that this had happened at a Redeemer church and everyone was talking about it. And so as one of the elders at my church was teaching on the regulative principle of worship in Sunday school, he mentioned, for example, we would probably not have ballet dancing um, in our service. And I think everyone kind of like snickered, you know, in Sunday school because we knew what he was referencing, but he was also making a point. Um, he wasn't trying to just be unkind or anything uh -huh. that, that in our denomination, we're not in the PCA, we're in the OPC, but right. in our denomination, we would not have dancing during mm -hmm. offertory or during any part of the service um, as, you know, following the regulative principle of worship. Mm -hmm. So. I just thought that was kind of funny <laughs> for and others to say. I'm not sure of other ways that people might think that Redeemer has broken the regulative principle of worship. Um, I mean, I, I've only gone to one service there. They certainly had instrumental music, which some people think is a violation. I, I think that's not the generally held reform view in this day and age. Um, I didn't observe anything else in that service that I thought would have been a violation, but um, for instance, Tim Keller has talked a lot about the importance of the arts and how we should try to include visual arts and all kinds of art in our worship. Um, and he said it very, usually very generally, but some people probably feel that 
there there's a sense to which maybe he's not fully sold on the concept of the regulative principle of worship. I'm sure if you talk to him, he would totally endorse it, and he's part of a denomination that holds to it. But I think usually the regulative principle tends to be more of a restrictive view of rather than a, how can we find a way to include everything that possible. It's more of what has God told us should be there, and we start with that as our starting point. And then we're just very, very careful about ever adding anything else in. Yeah. So, and, and once again, I, I don't, I don't go to a reformed church. So we would hold to something that's more of the normative principle of worship, where if it hasn't been forbidden in scripture, it's permitted. But I, I really do have a lot of respect for the reformed view. And I, more to the point, I think that if you're in a denomination where this is the established practice, it's important for you to hold to that if you're going to be part of that denomination. So I do have a respect for that. Yeah. And if any, I mean, I can imagine some people would be listening thinking, gosh, you guys are being awfully critical. Like it's just a dance, you know, but I mean, as reform people, we do see the regulative principle as, I mean, a very essential to being mm -hmm. reformed. Like, you know, if a church was like, we're reformed, but didn't hold to it, we would be like, what, you know, like <laughs> that's so essential to, to who we are and what, how we worship God is that regulative principle. So. Right. Um, I'm thinking back right now to, I mentioned that I listened to uh, Carl Truman's course on the Reformation. And I think it was in one of his first lectures, he described sort of the difference between Luther's goals in the Reformation and Calvin's goals. And he said a lot of people assume that Calvin was really all about predestination and election. And he certainly did teach about those things. But really for Calvin, the Reformation was about the recovery of worship and the proper worship of God. And that has been a real trend in the reform down to the present day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, earlier, you mentioned that sometimes Keller's been accused of uh, talking one way to one group of people and talking. And I know I noticed one of the criticisms is um, that he is not strong enough on abortion and homosexuality. Does that have something to do with that? That he's not being strong enough in certain crowds or like, is yeah, there any validity would, there? I would definitely say so. I mean, obviously these are two issues where in the city of New York, it's probably not entirely popular to get up and say that abortion is murder or homosexuality is a sin. Um, yeah, I think Tim Keller definitely holds both of those positions, which I believe are biblical positions, but you won't find very many occasions on which he speaks about either of those things publicly. Um, he has done so, and I mentioned some of those things in my article. But I think what frustrates a lot of people is they feel like he's just not wanting to offend liberal people in New York um, who might come to his church. He's not wanting to offend them. He's just wanting to make them, you know, very comfortable. And I, I know um, I heard one person say, well, when you go to Redeemer, they don't have a brochure in their front lobby uh, that is a pro-life brochure or anything about abortion. And Honestly, when I heard that comment, I thought, I'm not sure my church has any brochures in the front oh lobby about abortion, and we're very pro-life. So, um, but I think what they're getting at is that 
maybe he does hold these positions, but he's just not willing to talk about them because he's afraid it will offend people. So I did a little bit of research trying to understand um, when has he spoken up about this, when has he not. And Redeemer Presbyterian Church does support uh, what I would probably call, what are usually called in my area, crisis pregnancy centers, um, different initiatives aimed at uh, women with unexpected pregnancies. And they have uh, devoted a lot of time and money to these issues. Uh, the problem is a lot of that tends to be not exactly undercover, but usually those kinds of ministries don't seek the limelight because it's a very sensitive issue. So um, they definitely have been doing that, but yeah, it, you won't find very many occasions on which uh, Tim Keller has specifically uh, written a paper or given a sermon or a speech or something about that. You know, he's been invited to speak at Google and all kinds of different places. And I don't think on any of those occasions you'll hear him talk about abortion. And for people who feel like this is such an epidemic in our country, um, they can kind of feel like that's a bit of a betrayal because it's such an important issue. I've heard people say specifically within New York that um, Tim Keller is so concerned about social justice issues, but New York has a very high abortion rate and he seems to be wanting to address, you know, housing and some issues like that, but not addressing the fact that all these abortions are taking place. Um, I wouldn't say that he's not addressing it at all, but it's definitely, um, I think he probably could do more in this area. There is a certain amount of disagreement among people who are pro-life about what is the best approach, what is the best way for us to counter um, the practice of abortion. And some people really want to focus on the legal prohibitions uh, and trying to get someone on the Supreme Court who will overturn Roe versus Wade or trying to get legislation passed that will put more restrictions on abortion. And uh, some people focus more on practical ministry and they say let you change individual parts. It's not going to make any difference. You can pass all the legislation in the world, but the root problem is still going to be there. I respect both of those opinions, and I think there's honestly a place for both of them within the pro-life movement. Um, I, I think maybe the pro-life movement has probably focused a little too much just purely on the legal route. Um, but I also see most people I know who are pro-life have done a lot of good work at the practical level as well. So I think it seems like both Tim Keller and Redeemer are focusing very much on the practical level, but you'll never hear them endorse a pro-life candidate or make a specifically pro-life in terms of anti-abortion statement in a church service. I, I would really doubt that would happen. Um, and there's some debate over how far churches should go in doing that. Obviously, um, politics gets very controversial, so I'm not going to make a definitive statement about that. But I, I can see why some people would feel that he probably should be doing a little more. And I, I would like to see him speak up more on that issue. Um, obviously, homosexuality is a pretty closely related issue. They're both real hot button political topics. Um, he has spoken a little more about homosexuality than he has about abortion, but the, the most concerning comments that I was able to find were back in an interview he had at the Veritas Forum back in 2011, where he was being interviewed by someone who was very outspoken against Christianity. 
and asked him, you know, basically, do you believe all homosexuals are terrible and they're going to hell? It was a very loaded question. But um, some of the things Tim Keller said in that conversation uh, set off red flags for people because he basically said, oh, being homosexual won't send you to hell. And he made it sound as if it wasn't sinful in some of his comments. When you see it in context, you understand a little more what he was talking about. He was basically referring to the sin behind the sin is what he called it. He said, basically, if you're going to hell, it's because you've rejected God and you've rejected the saving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You're not just going to hell because you're homosexual. So I understand what he was getting at. But once again, we come up against this issue of speaking one way to one audience and another way to another audience and the lack of clarity in his comments. So another thing he was criticized for that I did think was pretty unfair was there was some employee in the Redeemer organization who was vocal on social media supporting um, uh, gay, transgender rights and a bunch of other fairly liberal political causes. I, and some people took this to mean that Tim Keller endorsed all that person's views, but I find this to be pretty unlikely because that individual never attended Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and there's no evidence that he had any influence on Tim Keller's views or had any relationship with Tim Keller. He just worked in the media department. But this sort of speaks to the underlying suspicion that people have that Tim Keller is really kind of secretly liberal and he's going to take the denomination in a liberal direction. So any little thing sort of becomes very concerning because they're already suspecting that he has more liberal theological tendencies. So, I, I mean, I would say to his credit, whenever uh, I've seen him specifically address homosexuality on other occasions, um, he has said that it's a sin and that it's not part of God's plan. And I think he's been willing to say that, but once again, the, the instances are pretty few and far between. So, um, yeah, I, I guess it's one of these issues that it, it's more a matter of degrees. Uh, has he said enough? Even more than any one particular thing he's said, has he said enough? I'm wondering, as you're talking, have we put that test to any other, you know, because I get, I get people are saying, okay, Tim Keller has this huge platform. He's very well known, even outside of Christian circles, mm -hmm. but there, there are other pastors like that. Um, have we put that same test to other pastors where I can't even think of like another well-known guy, but I'm just saying like, I guess the criticism some, seems to me a, a little bit disingenuous because, you know, like, would you put that same test to like R.C. Sproul or, you know, John MacArthur, like, let's count all the times that they've said something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. It could it could seem that way. I, I could be wrong on that. But well, it, it, it seems to me to be looking looking to criticize mm -hmm. a, a little bit. I think that well, happens, and I also think there are people that have their issue. So, you know, there are people that feel that abortion is, I mean, we should all feel strongly about uh, about abortion, but, you know, that is like what they see as one of the most important issues. So if a pastor isn't doing what they think that pastor should do, then the criticisms come. So mm -hmm. I think there's two things that can sometimes happen. Yeah. 
Right. And honestly, if you believe that abortion is murder, then obviously that's going to be an important issue to you. And it should be. And I think the church does have a lot to say on that and should be saying a lot on that issue. But uh, Ashley, you ask a good question. Do we hold everybody to the same standard? I think there's a narrative that's being formed in people's heads right now uh, that the culture is really going in a liberal direction. Um, we are adopting some interesting ideas with regard to gender, and I don't mean that in a good way. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I just saw, you know, the headline even right before we started recording that, you know, transgender man gives birth to baby boy, and it's sort of, I mean, first of all, okay, what, if you're a man, can you even give birth to a baby? But then, if gender isn't a thing that exists, why did they assume that the baby was a boy? I don't know, but I think we kind of put ourselves in a very odd cultural position at this point where um and people see you know for instance the supreme court decision that legalized gay marriage a couple years ago and they just feel like this is all happening very fast and that pretty soon uh they're going to be showing up at our churches to shut us down because we you know speak against homosexuality so this narrative and i'm not even saying that it's totally alarmism because i think our culture is definitely going in a particular direction I don't think we've reached the end times yet, but um, you know, I, I think it definitely is a time that we need to really evaluate where do we stand and how are we gonna speak to these issues. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think particularly when we have people like, well, I'll name names, Jen Hatmaker or Eugene Peterson making comments that seem to be very, or are very supportive of same-sex marriage. I can understand why people are wanting our major Christian leaders to say very clearly, where do you stand on this issue? Um, because there does seem to be a trend that if you are sort of ambiguous about it, you're gonna end up basically supporting it. So I think people want think it's time for us to take a stand for biblical orthodoxy, and I, I can appreciate that. At the same time, we need to be careful that we don't make an assumption of guilt either, um, particularly when, you know, just because someone hasn't said things, you know, enough times, um, I, there may be reason that they should be saying things more often, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not holding to biblical orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Good perspective. In our, in our list uh, that we've done on this show, maybe a second time now when this airs, of what to remember when we're disagreeing, mm -hmm. um, but also when we're disagreeing, but still keeping in mind that we're part of the same church. And one of the things that um, Pastor Brian Thomas we had on said is major in the majors. And I think sometimes a lot can be made. Not that abortion isn't, <laughs> that that is a major issue, but they're making they're I think that they're also turning certain things into making it a bigger issue than maybe it is. Mm -hmm. Particularly when it comes to the specifics of how we should confront an abortion. I think, you know, saying that we should be pro-life and that we should oppose abortion, I think that is biblical orthodoxy. But there may be maybe the specifics of how we confront it are not so much of yeah, a bedrock issue. There could be room for some disagreement there, but we should all be holding to the ba basic biblical orthodoxy. So in your second article, and again, we'll be linking both of those, and mm -hmm. and you actually have one of the video, I wanted to mention, since you were talking about the homosexual, 
homosexuality issue, you actually have one of those videos linked on the first article of Tim Keller being asked what he thinks about it, are mm -hmm. homosexuals going to hell? So you can watch that on, the, on her mm -hmm. first article. But on the second one, you talk about his view on the Trinity. Brought you to talk about that. And what did you find when you looked at his view on the Trinity? Because I haven't, I can't say I've heard a lot of people talk about his view on the Trinity. Well, that's an interesting question because my original intention had been to do two articles that would address 10 issues. And I went, the first article, I went ahead with the first five. And then when I moved on to do the second article, um, I began to feel that his Trinitarian views were a big enough issue that they really just deserved their own treatment. And there were a lot of reasons for that, not all of which I'm going to discuss on this podcast, but some of them had to do with my interaction uh, with the person for Redeemer. But um, I honestly, when I first heard the complaint, it was about a passage in his book, The Reason for God, which was released back in 2008, mainly an apologetic work aimed at non-Christians. And some of the ways he had discussed the Trinity there uh, had sort of rubbed people the wrong way. So my intention was just to sort of look at that passage and decide if it was orthodox or not. But once again, it was one of these situations where, where I started to go down the rabbit hole and found there was a lot more there that I had not realized was going to be there. And I just felt that it was so important that I needed to put everything else to the side and do an article focusing on that issue. So um, in his teachings on the Trinity, I found three basic emphases, and they're all rather interrelated. The first is his description of the Trinity as a divine dance. Uh, the second is the ways in which he talks about the glory of God and how the members of the Trinity glorify one another. And the third is what he calls the other orientation of God. And in other words, God being oriented toward others and how we should in turn be oriented toward others. So um, the divine dance, as I said, was first discussed in the book, The Reason for God. He had also mentioned it in a sermon about a decade ago, but those are really the only two places it shows up. Um, he's never written a book that just deals purely with Trinitarian theology. He's never developed it in depth. Um, the two people that Tim Keller really points to um, as far as where he got this image from are C.S. Lewis and Cornelius Plantinga. And in my article, I looked at those passages and, you know, some of the different things that the ways that those authors had developed this idea. Um, another connection I found, and one that's never been mentioned by Tim Keller, is a theologian named uh, Jürgen Moltmann, who was active back in sort of the mid to late 20th century. And he's a pretty liberal theologian, so I'm not sure it's a connection that Tim Keller would necessarily like people to draw. And by no means do I think that Tim Keller sat down and read Moltmann's Trinitarian Theology and said, I'm now going to base my book on that. But some of these theologians are so prominent that their ideas start to trickle down into other theologians' writings, which then trickle down into other theologians' writings. And I think that's sort of what we had happen here. Uh, so this divine dance is basically talking about how the members of the Trinity kind of circle around each other and envelop each other and defer to each other, and they're very selfless, and none of them are really 
taking the lead, they're all in a dance and they're dancing around each other. And to me, the whole principle of making any kind of human analogy about the Trinity is kind of problematic. But um, the way that Keller uses it is not quite as concerning as the way some of these other authors have used it. Because, for instance, uh, Moltmann has linked it in with this theology that's known as the social trinity, which some people feel is very close to really overemphasizing the threeness of the trinity over the oneness of the trinity. I don't know that Keller has necessarily done that, but once again, we're getting into this issue of clarity because you can see very clearly his connections with these previous theologians. He doesn't seem to endorse all of their ideas, but it certainly raises some questions about, well, if you accept this part of their thinking, do you accept the rest of their thinking? So, and as I went further into his Trinitarian theology, uh, I looked at the way he was talking about how the members of the Trinity all wanted to glorify each other and they weren't seeking their own glory. They wanted to glorify each other. And then he sort of took that into the realm of human redemption, talking about when Jesus came here, he wasn't coming to seek glory, but to give glory. And on the surface, it doesn't necessarily seem to be problematic, but when you start seeing some of the ways that he develops it in his sermons, and I listened to multiple sermons that he's given on the topic, it can start to suggest that either the glory of God is not the fundamental purpose of redemptive history, or that God isn't seeking to glorify himself, or that the members of the Trinity have three separate wills, and any of those three things would be very problematic in light of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the traditional you know, Orthodox understanding of the Trinity. And I, probably some of your listeners are aware that the Trinity has been a pretty controversial topic recently um, in the blogosphere and on social media. So when I started hearing some of these things, I started to wonder where does he stand on some of those issues if he's saying some of these things about the Trinity. And um, another thing, the third emphasis that he has is this idea of an other orientation in God. And that is really taken from a book by D.A. Carson called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And in that book, uh, D.A. Carson says some things that seem to be pretty close to what you just mentioned, the ESS eternal subordination of the sun, or at least a functional subordination. I know it's getting kind of into the weeds, but um, I, when I saw that, I did a little more searching, and lo and behold, I found a video of Tim Keller, John Piper, and D.A. Carson all speaking at a Gospel Coalition conference, and in that discussion, D.A. Carson clearly supported uh, this doctrination of the eternal subordination, or at least functional subordination of the sun. So when I read that, I, or when I saw that, I was very confused at that point because I had started out thinking that Keller was more leaning towards there being no authority at all within the Trinity. And now when I saw where he was getting his ideas from, I started to think maybe all this talk about an other orientation and deferring and submission is really getting into the idea that there are two members of the Godhead that are submitting to the other member of the Godhead. So I asked for some clarification and I included in my article um, 
what 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 was basically given to me by this Redeemer staff member who told me that Tim Keller does explicitly reject the eternal subordination of the sun or the eternal functional subordination of the sun and that he holds to the traditional understanding found in the Westminster Confession of the Faith that the Father, God the Father is neither begotten nor proceeding, God the Son is eternally begotten, and the Holy Spirit is uh, proceeding from the Father and the Son. So that's what I was told, and I think that it is correct, certainly I think that's the accurate representation of Tim Keller's view, but once again, if you just see some of his comments out of context, um, they can start to make you question some of those things. So he, he gave um, very recently a sermon back just in May of this year where he was a little more clear on some of these issues. Uh, and I think that was helpful. But the, the thing about this is that even though maybe the majority of Tim Keller's theology is contained in his sermons, that's not the majority of what the average person is going to hear. What they're going to hear or, or, or read are things he's written in articles or in books or he's said at a conference. You know, that's going to get a lot more traction. So even though he might feel like the majority of his theology is in his sermons, most people aren't going to go through and listen to every sermon he's ever given to get the full context. So context and clarity are very important, particularly at a time when we have a major debate going on over how we understand uh, relations of the three persons of the Godhead, it's important that we are very careful about which words we use and understanding that words have particular meanings for people. And so when we say, for example, that the, you know, the Son or the Holy Spirit is deferring to the Father, that can imply to some people that they have separate wills and that one of them has to be obedient to the other. You know, it can imply a lot of things. So I think, once again, the problem is not even so much um, a break from orthodoxy, but just a real need for clarity. So that was how I concluded that article, was just really calling on all of our major Christian figures to be very clear about where they stand on these Trinitarian issues. And I, I know that people are very hesitant to disagree publicly, or they may see this as a secondary issue. I really don't think that it is. I think how we understand the doctrine of God is a fundamental issue. It's not a secondary issue. So that would be what I would encourage our Christian leaders to be doing today is just to be very clear on where they stand on these issues. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think you said some people are don't want to criticize. And I think on the other side, we have people who that's, they do an awful lot of that. Uh -huh. Sure. So is there any more articles coming? Are you still going to do the other five? Um, no. Uh, as a result of all the different things that have happened, I, I don't have any plans to write about him again in the near future. But um, I thought the first article was decently good. I think in the second article, I upped my game a little bit because of some of the things that had been mentioned to me as a result of the first article. I could see that I needed to go even more in depth with the research. and. Um, some of the things I considered talking about were, for instance, his involvement with the BioLogos um, organization and some connections with theistic evolution. I, I think there definitely are some concerns there, uh, but I just felt like 
uh, I didn't want to dwell on this controversy forever. And I had said what was most important for me to say at that point. Yeah, there because there are other things. Um, there's another podcast on the network, their Reformed Baptist, Semper Reformanda, and mm -hmm. they did an episode on Tim Keller and talked about completely different things than we've mm -hmm. discussed today. So I know that I know that there probably are some people, you know, maybe wondering about some of the other things. So that's why I asked. And I think there's no shortage of articles out there. Sure. Um, some people have found uh, some real issues in how he talks about the, the doctrine of hell or the doctrine of sin. Um, there, I do want to recommend, if any of your listeners do really want to go in depth on this, there is a book called Engaging with Keller that was released a few years ago, and a lot of different um, pastors and academics contributed to that. It, it contains one chapter by Kevin Bidwell that specifically talks about his Trinitarian theology. Um, and it also contains other chapters that talk about some of these other issues. So I, I do think that that book definitely is more on the critical side. So I think we should always be trying to get a balance, you know, look for, you know, some things that are critical and some more supportive. But uh, that definitely would be if people are interested in a deep dive on some of these issues, that would be a good thing for them to read. Oh, that's that's really good to know. Have you gotten any feedback? Yes, um, most of it has been positive. When I posted my first article, of course, all the people on Twitter who uh, are critical of Tim Keller were very responsive and, oh, we love this and we're so happy that you've written on this. And if anything, they thought I wasn't hard enough on him. Um, but uh, then, you know, the Trinity article was much more in depth. So probably, you know, it didn't attract quite as many people as all the controversies within the PCA. And there are a lot of controversies within the PCA. <laughs> but um, I think that uh, I was pretty pleased with how people responded to it. I didn't get a lot of nasty letters or anything like that. I did, as I mentioned, I did have some extensive contact with someone at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, which was mostly very positive. Um, I think, well, I'll just say, particularly since he's been on your podcast, that um, R. Scott Clark, who is a professor at Westminster Seminary in California, um, didn't necessarily agree with the way I discussed the regulative principle of worship, uh, because he felt that even with the way that the PCA Book of Church Order is laid out, and even with what's in the Westminster Confession of Faith, he did feel like they were violating um, the regulative principles. So I, I understand that, and I respect his opinion. Um, I, I stand by what I wrote, but I do respect his opinion. And then um, I, one thing we haven't talked about, I discussed uh, the policies that Redeemer has for ordaining and or not ordaining deacons that are either male or female, and that that's a big controversy within the PCA. So I had some people that felt that I could have done a little more on that issue, but I was just getting so into the weeds with all of these PCA issues <laughs> that I don't <laughs> entirely understand. And it was difficult for me to determine where exactly the truth was. So I, when I felt I could no longer speak intelligently about it, I just kind of said, I'll let other people take up that issue. But um, for the most part, the feedback has been very, very good and very supportive and encouraging, which I appreciate. Um, when I first set out to write these articles, I said, well, I'm probably either 
really brave or really stupid, one or the other. I'm not sure which one. <laughs> uh, hopefully, hopefully, really brave. But um, I, I don't know. I'll leave. I'll let people come to their own conclusions on that. And we didn't ask about the. We didn't ask about the woman deacon issue and all of that. I think just partly because I think that could honestly be an episode all in itself sure, and the sure. things that are going on in the PCA right now. And of course, um, I think at the airing of this, we're probably wrapping up our series on complementarianism. So we might talk about that a little bit more at another time. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Ashley, did you have any other questions? No, I think she's got it. Um, I do want to say that if you're not following Amy on Twitter, you're missing out on a lot of gifts. So you that all, is, you all should go follow Amy on Twitter because it I is do fun. Have, I do have the spiritual gift of GIF. Or <laughs> some people say it GIF, and yeah. honestly, when I, I, that was how I started to say it, but I understand that most people say GIF. Yeah, my computer programming friends say GIF. I will bow to peer pressure and say GIF. Uh -huh. uh, but yeah, I particularly um, I, I've been known to have particular uh, propensity for using Wonder Woman gifts, and um, I think I saw a lot of rabbits the other day. So I yeah, uh, as far as the cute animals, what happens on Twitter is you tend to get a lot of debates that go on and on about you know baptism or covenant theology and things like this, and usually the participants are all male. And when I get to the point where I feel like they're really not accomplishing much anymore or where it's just getting out of hand, <laughs> I will. I, I started out doing what I call the duck bomb, where I would just reply to them all with gifts of ducklings. And um, I felt like that was getting a little old, so I might be moving on to rabbits now. Um, okay. After that, maybe puppies. I don't know. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, there was, there was one yesterday that you were on. And I think I posted a GIF that was like, all right, it, like it was two dogs. It was like, all right, if you guys can get along, I'll give you a treat. Yeah, <laughs> I that one, Ashley. Um, I, it was in the spirit of your normal uh, interactions. So I, I was I was aiming that at you. I so. definitely overuse them. I will definitely admit to overusing GIFs <laughs> and I repent and I probably <laughs> I don't see myself changing anytime in the near future. <laughs> yeah, there's a gal in our group who does that too. And one of our admins, we've kind of had a funny thing going on. Ashley's on a Facebook break, so she's missing it. But um, one of our admins will go in and say, um, I, ne I need to request that you stop posting gifts. And, <laughs> and also, my boys, I have four boys, ages 14 to 21. They say it's pronounced gif. So if they say it's pronounced gif, then that's what it is. <laughs> well, we'll forget if we should have pedo baptism or credo baptism. This is the debate that's going to divide us and yeah. opportunity. Is it GIF or JIF? Yeah. I, well, I got to go with what my kids say because <laughs> they're, they're um, in the know. <laughs> and well, Ashley, thank you. Ashley said GIF also. So mm -hmm. she's a my, my husband says JIF. Oh, because oh, no. that's what our that's what our computer programmer friends say. They they and they say that's what it actually is, and so he he thinks that's trustworthy. 
And so my husband says, GIF. And people always correct him. It's so funny. They're always like, uh, don't you know anything? It's GIF, you know? And he'll always be like, don't you know anything? Like, that's <laughs> not what it is. It's really funny. Well, since you mentioned that, my husband is also into computer programming. And he assures me that it stands for graphic image file. Mm -hmm. And he says a hard G sound, so we should say it GIF. Oh, okay. Well, well, the jury's still out, I think. This so. is going to get edited out. There's no chance that this is making the final cut. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. See, this is why people listen to us, for this part of it. Yeah. Well, okay. Amy, All right. we, we enjoyed having you on. Maybe we'll have to have you on again. And I think that's actually our plan. There's another topic we want to talk to you about at some point. And I want to encourage ladies, go and follow her on Twitter and check out her blog. She's got a lot of great articles over there. I, I just discovered you, you know, several weeks ago, whenever, when did the, the first Keller article came out? Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I was on Presby cast too, they, they, uh, yeah, they, and you were braver than me. Uh, they sort of half invited me to come on that Presby cast, but, um, it, it didn't end up working out, but honestly, I, you know, that's, that's kind of toxic, the Presby cast. So I wasn't sure I wanted to touch that with a 10 foot pole, but <laughs> you know, I joke, I joke. Um, well, especially uh, if you weren't Presbyterian, I think if I wasn't right. Presbyterian, I might be scared. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, no, I, I'm sorry. No, I, I was very happy that the one little, time they mentioned me on that podcast, they did pronounce my name correctly. So I, I guess I'm a fan of the Presby cast after all. Well, we appreciate you coming on, Amy. And Ashley and I will be back in just a minute. All right, thank you. Looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach? Look no further. At TrackedPlanet.com, we have solid biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out. They are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available. With over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new tract just for you. We are committed to the solid biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at TrackedPlanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's TRACTPlanet.com, coupon code BTWN. We are back with our last question of the week segment, Ashley, because we're going to be starting a new segment next week. All right. I'm excited. So, so surprise. yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, um, you'll, you'll have to tune in to find out what our new segment is. Um, I believe our question of the week was pets. Right. What animals do you have? I think I'll, if you have been a regular listener to Theology Gals, you probably know that you probably know one of Ashley's animals. 
Yeah, because one of my animals has been on the show two or three times. Someone actually messaged me and said, I was listening to the most recent episode. Were there cats in the background at one point? And I was like, you know, I don't remember, but I really would not be surprised if my cats were meowing. So, so I do have two cats. Um, one of them is white, and my husband named him Yogurt. Um, oh, that's just, cute kind of funny um he's kind of our big baby and then i have a, a smaller kind of striped cat i don't know what they're called but we named her minerva mcgonagall um uh, from uh harry potter so uh i am a fan yeah, we have to talk about harry potter <laughs> we do sometime. need to talk about harry potter sometime so oh now that our audience knows i have a cat named after they probably know where i stand on the harry potter that's right. Issue. Um, but we call her Minnie. Um, but she looks just like the cat from the movies. Like she looks like Minerva McGonagall when she um, turns into a cat. So, did you get those two? Did you get those cats after you got married? Yes. And actually, we got them because this is actually something I don't think any of our listeners know, um, except my my friends that listen. Um, we actually had a hedgehog. Oh. You know hedgehogs, uh -huh. like the little spiky guys. We actually, yep. we actually bought him in Denver. Oh, really? When we were there, yeah, we bought because you can't buy them in California. Us, one of Austin's teachers had they had a hedgehog as their class pet. Yeah, they're so cute. Oh my gosh, he has his own Instagram, um, and I would I would post pictures of him, you know. But oh. when when we got our first cat our cat started to like jump into his like cage and stuff. And we oh. were like, this isn't a good idea, but he is so cute. We had to give him away to another family. Um, but if you're curious how cute he was, you can look him up on Instagram. His name was Rudy the Hedgehog. Okay. So, I'm, well, when at the end of school, when Austin's teacher was basically giving the hedgehog away, and I think there was three of, we actually said, we'll take it because you'll find out in a minute. We have a lot of animals and, and they, so she did a drawing of the three people who wanted it and we didn't win. Oh, bummer. Yeah. They're super cute. They're prickly though. You, you have to hold them like with a towel. Otherwise it, their little quills get you. So. Yeah. They're so cute. I used to love watching the one in Austin's. Austin's class. So is that all? Did you grow up with animals? Yeah, we always had birds and turtles and I don't know if we ever had any amphibians. Is a turtle an amphibian? Okay, don't, I don't know. But we always had dogs, cats, fish, birds, hamster, you know, like all those typical like kid pets. We had the same thing growing up. Yeah. Too. So I, I'm used to animals. The first like six months we were married, we lived in an apartment where you couldn't have any pets. And I was like, this is so weird. Like my whole life, I come home and I pick up my dog. I pet my cat, you know, like we seriously need an animal. And so when we moved, we got the hedgehog. Um, and now we have cats that, you know, they're the best, but. I, I I would I would find it really hard to live without pets. Yes, me. So so I hear you have quite the zoo over there. Well, my husband grew up with zero animals, so 
He, he, he doesn't feel as strongly about animals as I do. He, he actually says he's, he's afraid if something happens to him that I'm just going to adopt all kinds of animals. And he's probably right. <laughs> cat lady. Yeah, right. So we actually got rid of our cats because my son Austin was having so many allergies. We had him test and he was allergic. So that was kind of a bummer. But we just have one dog right now. Our golden retriever died almost a year ago. He was almost 13. His name was Luther. He was the best dog ever. And then I have Jersey. She's a Boston, a red Boston Terrier. And she was a gift Cute. from my best friend who was Boston, colored Boston breeder. And she's, she's just the sweetest, sweetest little thing. And we have, I don't know if I even know everything. We have, so I have a son who loves reptiles and amphibians. And so we have snakes and yes. frogs, toads. I don't think we have any salamanders right now. Have you ever heard of an axolotl? No. Okay, so our axolotl just died. We had him for years. So I'm gonna try, hopefully I'm telling this correctly. They're, they look closer to a fish with legs, but oh. what they are is in, I think it was a, a lake in Mexico or something, there wasn't enough nutrients to turn completely into a salamander. So they stayed in this same, in their same form before they would turn into a salamander. And they started breeding. There's your cat. They yeah. started. They started breeding like that, and huh. they're. They've actually studied them because they um, regrow limbs. So they're kind of. Yeah. They. It is so fun because whenever Ian would hand feed it, we had it in a huge like forty five gallon tank, but Ian would hand feed it and. He would get all excited when he saw Ian coming over. He was waiting because we'd give him these little salmon pellets. So one time one of the snakes got out and I found it in my purse, which I wasn't very happy about. But I'm trying to think, oh, lizards. We love lizards too. We love lizards. I So I had a crested gecko, the cutest thing in the whole world. <laughs> and that was my very own crested gecko and my cat got it oh it was very sad she got the lid off and we we put the a weight on top of the lid so she couldn't get it off someone forgot another time my cat knocked over a lizard cage i see the i see calvin that was our cat running downstairs i could see a lizard tail cats yeah they yeah they, not had, the best with other small pets right right so we we love we love animals. We don't have any birds right now, but you said your cat is yogurt. When our kids were little, we would let them name our cats. And so we had a cat named Spaghetti. And oh we my had gosh. A parakeet named Blueberry. That so. is so cute. A cat named Spaghetti. That's mm -hmm. so my husband, when he was in high school or middle school, those that know him will laugh at this. He had a bearded dragon. And he would put the bearded dragon on a leash and walk it around the block. <laughs> that's great. So that's like, that's my husband. He, <laughs> he loves animals and 
He really Dragon wants dragons are cool too. Yeah, he really wants to get a desert tortoise for our backyard because um, he thinks those are really cool. But you know what? We had a desert tortoise. There had been a fire. There was my dad was part of a desert tortoise rescue, and Ooh. there so there was a this tortoise that had been rescued from the fire from the San Bernardino forest, <laughs> and. But, and so he would, he would run around our backyard and whatnot, but he would come to the sliding glass door and he would, it, he would tap his paw on it. It was always tap, 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 and then he'd stop. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. He was about 55 years old when we got wow, him. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so I, I love tortoises. We actually got my dad a tortoise here and he let him run around the backyard one day and never to be seen again sadly yeah it happens yeah it does it does so okay so amy sent me several links on what she talked about today and she also sent me just a lot of the links that she got her information from some tim keller books and some different things so definitely check out the website biblethumpingwingnut.com and click on theology gals and find this episode and I'll have all of those all of those links there and if you want to support us they're also on the page you will see a link to our patreon and I am going to be starting I think probably bi-weekly just kind of short segments for our patreon supporters and I think I think that's pretty much everything thank you guys for all the feedback on the complementarianism and Genesis 316 episodes. I do think Ashley and I are gonna, what, after we have Amy Bird on about women in the church, I think Ashley and I will do a wrap up episode, answer some of your questions, because I know some of you still have sent in some questions and just kind of wrap up the whole complementarianism topic and talk a little bit about the things that we've talked about with the guests. So. That'll probably be, I don't know when everything's going to happen. Our complimentary episodes aren't all together because guests and stuff, but we will do that and try to answer some of the questions that you have. So we will see you next week. Bye.